Amen. I wanted to just sit in the pew and meditate upon those words for a few more moments. Reminded me, reminded me of Isaiah chapter 55, that his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. God will always accomplish his purposes. His promises are true, they are right, and they are always on time. Amen. Well, let us begin. Actually, let me let me begin by going to Galatians three. So thankful for the words that my uh, brother Michael mentioned this morning. It's like, man, I don't know what I'm thinking. Trying to get through the law, Exodus chapter twenty, in one Sunday on a very busy Sunday. So I'm going to attempt it. Uh, it's always. It's always not worth a shot to attempt it, but we'll probably come back here again. But Galatians 3, Michael, I think, read some of these verses, but I'm going to put this as the uh, precursor to what we're about to read in Exodus 20. I was going to put it at the end, maybe I'll do it at the beginning and the end, but it's good for us to think through the law through the lens of Christ. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 23. It says, now faith came, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have been put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Amen. Amen. Well, we have slowly and methodically led up to this point in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20 is one of those chapters where I guess a preacher could just open his book and preach out of it at any point in time, but we have slowly been getting to this point, but our journey has not been as long as the journey that Israel has endured, not all that they have faced. And so we begin in Exodus chapter 20 with God speaking. Let us stand as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21, the first 21 verses. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we hear from you. Lord, you have spoken to us. And Father, we confess that we are not like the Israelites in numerous ways, but in one way, Lord, we live now in a different nation, in a different culture. But our Father, I pray that we will be like them in the fact that we come trembling, not out of a fear of punishment, but out of awe and reverence of who you are. Lord, I pray that we will see you as holy, 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 the only true God. And Lord, as we think about who we are in light of who you are, Lord, we see how small we are. We see that we have failed, that we have fallen short, that we have not kept your commands. But Lord, I pray that your commands, just as we read earlier, will be a tutor, will be a guardian, will be a teacher who will point us to your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we need you. Lord, we need your grace. We need your mercy. Because Father, we are sinners. But Lord, we know through your word that we are forgiven. We are sons and daughters of God through your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, give us the hope, the hope that's found through your message, through the gospel. Lord, I thank you for your words, and Lord, I pray that you will teach us today how to worship you. Lord, your word says that we are to worship you in spirit and in truth. So Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us, and that we are here to hear your word and obey it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, this morning, again, we are going to try to go through Exodus 20. God has spoken. And in Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments are listed there, but right before they're listed, it says, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? 
So we hear the voice of God, and we are alive to do so. What the point, the point of Deuteronomy and the point even here in the book of Exodus 20 is that we are hearing from a holy God. God is holy. He is not like ourselves. He is different. He is perfect. He is other than us. He is holy. And so when you hear the voice of God, you must recognize that you are hearing from a holy God. And when you hear the voice of God, you must recognize that you are receiving mercy from God. So we recognize we are hearing from a holy God and we are experiencing mercy from God. But most importantly, when God speaks, what do we do as the, the people of God, the followers of Christ? What do we do? What is our job? What is our role? Listen. When God speaks, we must listen. It's not one of those things where it's like in one ear, out the other. But we must listen so that we might do what? Obey. So when God speaks, we listen. And so God has spoken, and so we are called to listen. Take a moment and think of a famous speaker, maybe a famous poet, maybe a famous musician. Think about this person in your mind, you know, your, your favorite author, favorite speaker, favorite philosopher. So if you have this person in your mind, and now you come to find out they're coming to town, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would clear my schedule. You know, I've got nothing else going on that day. I'm going to make sure that I'm available. I'm going to contact my wife, and I'm going to maybe I'll just not let her know. I'll clear her schedule for her. No, that's not a good idea. I would make sure her schedule is clear as well. Then what would you do next? You would go. You would go ready to hear, ready with paper and pen or smartphone out, you know, ready to do whatever you have, can do to take notes, to receive wisdom. Because you would want to get all the wisdom you could from this individual. Well, here we see that God has spoken. He has showed up. He has come to town. He is here with us. We see from God's word, He has spoken. So if He has spoken, we must listen. He reveals things to us about our world, about science, about creation. But also, here particularly in Exodus 20, he reveals things to us, we might not like this at times, but about our hearts. Jesus in particular amplifies the law in Exodus 20 and reveals things to us about our hearts. So God is revealing himself to us, and this is the highest and the greatest knowledge that any human can ever hear, is words and wisdom from a holy God. This is what we receive. Dr. Albert Moeller says this, that if God has spoken, then it is all about God and it is all for our good. You see, God does speak words of judgment in the scripture and God does speak words of warning. Indeed, there are hard words in scripture, but it is all for our good. It is all for our good. So just as Jeremy saying earlier, and as we see in, the, in Scripture, particularly in Isaiah, we might not be able to pinpoint every reason, every word, every activity, and how we can connect the dots, because um, that's what I want to see in my life. I'm go- if I'm going to do this action, I need to know why I'm going to do that action. But we know here that God has spoken to us, and His words are for our good. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that his words are for our good? Well, what does he say here in Exodus chapter 20? His first words to the people of Israel are, 
I am the Lord, your God. I'm your God. I'm not the God of the Egyptians. I'm not a God that's going to trick you or, or deceive you, but I am your God. Well, what has God done? For those of you who have been with us for several weeks, we see, or if you've read Exodus, you see what God has done. He has brought them, that is the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. Not because there was a drought or tourism went bad, but because they were enslaved. They were oppressed. And they were, so he brought them out of the house of slavery. So God reveals who he is. He reveals what he has done. He reminds us of his story. And he reminds us what he has done. So he is reassuring the people of Israel, again, what I'm about to tell you is for your good. Because God has rescued them and he has redeemed them. It was he who rescued them from slavery. It was he who has redeemed them. Do you take time to think about God's rescue plan in your own life? We need to be mindful of the fact that we needed rescuing. You needed rescuing. I needed rescuing. So did Israel. The people of Israel were not perfect. They were far from it. They were stubborn. They were stiff-necked. They doubted God at times and complained often. I love listening to what God did through Israel because as they were moaning and groaning and complaining, I see myself. I could, I could see myself thinking, well, I don't have food. I don't have water. I don't have this. Where is God? He was just there. But yet they doubted. But God had delivered them. He did deliver them, even in the midst of their doubts. So sometimes we are like Moses, full of faith, ready to do whatever the Lord says, ready to march forward, ready to say, okay, God, I'm ready to obey. That's us sometimes. We're like men of faith, women of faith, just like Moses. But then there's other times when we're like Moses in Exodus chapter 5. This was me at one point this week when Moses said, why did you ever send me? Do you remember when he said that? Then he said, you have not delivered your people at all. Remember, this was Moses, the meek man, the humble man, the man of faith. That can be like us at times, saying, God, why? Why did you send me? Why did you call me? Why did you redeem me? What are you doing? We can ask all of those tough questions. But the fact of the matter is, I'm spending so much time on the first two verses. Um, we are going to go quickly, obviously. But I'm spending so much time on the first two verses because they're so important that we see who God is. He says, I am the Lord your God. God did deliver. He did redeem and rescue his people. So this highlights his plan of redemption. He kept Israel alive to show his power. But God's redemptive plan doesn't end here, though. We must see Moses as pointing us to Christ, just like we saw Abraham pointing us to Christ. We must see that just as Moses led the people of Israel out of bondage, Jesus Christ will lead his people, us, out of bondage as well. Not out of bondage to Pharaoh, but bondage to sin. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Amen. So God's plan of redemption is reflected here even in the giving of the law. As Michael pointed out, the law is not a graceless law. The law reflects God's grace and points us to the fact that He has given us instructions. He has given us commands. And so 
God wants Israel to see. He wants us to see that He has rescued us, redeemed us, and redefines who we are, what we're to believe, and how we are to behave. Now, when I say redefine, I am not saying that God is um, redefining things, but He is defining again our roles and our relationship to Him. He is defining our role to Him. So these rules, these commands, these words, they teach us to know God, to trust God, and again, key word, to obey Him as God. So the first command in verse 3 is the most important command. What does verse 3 say? You shall have no other gods before me. The one true God, the triune God, our Trinitarian God, tells us there shall be no other gods. We can serve no other gods besides the one true God. So this command is crucial in understanding the rest. But what does this mean and how does it to be understood as we live life? Listen to what Martin Luther says. Luther says, What does to have a God mean or what is God? Answer, a God is the term for, sorry, that's so small. I can email that out if you, if you want that quote. A God is the term for that to which we are to look for all good and in which we are to find refuge in all need. Therefore, to have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in that one with your whole heart. As I've often said, it is the trust and faith of the heart along that both God and, that make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true one. So this is what it means to worship the one true God. This verse, verse 3, reminds us that God is a jealous God. Now, I know that concept. We've talked about that before, and um, it, that's a sermon even in and of itself. Um, but that's offensive to some because, again, we elevate ourselves. But God is good, He's right, He's holy, He's just, and He's jealous because He alone can be. He alone is perfect and worthy of our worship. So there's none that compare with him. No one else is like him. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17 says this, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So Paul, just like Moses here, reminds us there's only one God. So the point here of verse 3 is we must not place anything or anyone above God. Good friend of mine, singer, uh, songwriter, Adam Dorsey, I've told you about before. He is, uh, he wrote a song called We Are the Created. And, and I always think back to that song and the fact that we are not the creator. We are the created. God is the creator. That's what we see here in this verse. God is the creator. We are the created. So there's a contrast, um, between who he is and who we are. He is infinite. We are finite. Yet there can be a contrast even in how we think and how we live. As I was going through this sermon, again, it always steps on my toes first before I get it to you and and I get to step on your toes. Hopefully I do so lightly. But um, as I was reading this or studying for this, it's easy to go through the Ten Commandments and go and do the mental checks. Say, okay, yeah, I believe in that. Okay, yes, I believe in that. I believe in that. But... Do we believe in that theologically, but also do we apply that to our lives in practical ways? We can often think of who God is rightly, but live wrongly. 
Oscar Wilde has said, to love oneself is the beginning of a lifelong romance. That is the way our culture lives. That's the way we operate. That's the, that's the mantra of the day, love yourself. And that could be right if rightly defined. But here, the, the notion is elevate yourself in the place of God. We just celebrated Valentine's Day in our culture where it's all about loving yourself. I even, you know, I follow baseball, baseball a lot, and even one of my favorite players, he gave a Valentine to himself. And his wife gave a Valentine to herself. I was like, I'm pretty sure we've gone off the beaten track. But that's the way we live, where it's all about loving ourselves and centering ourselves at at the center of the picture. But that's not biblical. That's not what we see here in Exodus 20. But I can speak of God's glory in one moment and then live selfishly the next. We must turn from our pride and the arrogance in our own hearts. Joy Davidman, the spouse of C.S. Lewis, she said, The modern idols are the idols of sex, the state, science, and society. We could add many other things to that list. So our hearts are often focused on worshiping and serving other things instead of God. This is where we turn now in verse 4. The second commandment focuses on idols. Verses 4 through 6 describe the danger of idolatry. We're going to pick up quickly now and go to be ready to take notes, listen attentively. So here in the second command, we're not to make idols, serve idols, and worship idols because they can't take the place of God. I won't do this right now, but I highly encourage you to read Isaiah 44 later. Isaiah 44, verses 9 through 17, shows us the futility of idols. They can't speak. They can't act. They cannot do what God can. But we are good at making idols. Our hearts are constantly seeking to serve idols of various kinds. Why? Why? Why are we good at making idols? Jeremiah tells us why. Because our hearts are deceptive. They're sick. We manipulate others and we deceive ourselves. In short, we sin because we're sinners. So we are good at making idols. In fact, John Calvin says, man's nature is perfect, perpetual factory of idols. One after another, after another, after another. We can worship idols. We worship people, places, and things even when we do not realize we are doing so. Listen to this. We can distort things, even good things, that God has given and make them idols that God has forbidden. What do I mean by that? Sex, money, recreation, family, work are all things that are good, but that we can turn into gods. But they were not given to us as gods. They are pathetic gods because they can't do what God can. So we must see who God is and worship God for who He is and not make for ourselves tiny idols in our hearts. Now for the rest of the commands, we've only gone through two commands. For the rest of the commands, I'm only going to list them and maybe say a sentence or two about them and we might come back to them at another point, but I'm just going to apply them quickly. Third, the third commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. This is verse 7. 
The name of God carries weight. When God reveals his name, he's revealing something about himself. So it carries weight. What message are we saying, are we, are we conveying when we misuse God's name? I gotta confess, I, I've just become prone to people misusing God's name. It just, it just, it's not that I tolerate it, it just becomes a natural thing that we hear. And we think, well, that's not as bad as this word or that curse word. But when we misuse God's name, we are conveying that his name is not important. The Federal Communications Commission have words that are banned from being shared over the airwaves. I don't know how many the list is up to. Maybe they're decreasing the list now. But the point is, words matter. The way we use God's name matters. We speak God's name with respect and reverence. What we saw earlier in Exodus chapter 3, Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I am who I am. He says, tell the people of Israel, I am has sent you. So he reveals who he is in his name. We must respect his name. Fourth, the fourth commandment, you're to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. This is the only command not mentioned in the New Testament. But we must see that we are created to work and we are created to rest. Jeremy and I were talking right before the service and it's so difficult to rest. But I remember uh, one of my professors in seminary said, one of the most spiritual things that you can do at times is to take a nap. I try to tell myself that often each day. So we are created to work and we are created to rest. Now don't, don't misuse that line. Remember, the, remember uh, honey, the, pa- the pastor says, I need to take a nap right now. <laughs> but uh, we are created to work and created to rest. Most importantly, we must rest in Christ and rest from our labors. Quickly, fifth, we are to honor your father and your mother. This commandment teaches us three things. First, we are given parents. It's a gift from God. Second, we are to honor them. And third, we recognize God's gift of establishing Christian homes. Again, Moeller is so helpful in this area. Dr. Moeller says, A Christian home is to be the first school, the first church, and the first government. I'm sure uh, many would mock that statement, but that is true. Six, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The commandment is clear, you shall not take the life of another. The, cl- the, the commandment speaks to ethical and political problems in our culture today. We could probably list about ten. One that is obvious is that abortion is wrong. We must acknowledge abortion is wrong because murder is wrong. God is protecting life and reminding us that God gives life through this command. God gives life through this command. Seventh, the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. The sixth commandment reminds us of God's gift of life. Now this commandment reminds us of God's gift in marriage. Again, this is each of these are a sermon in and of themselves, but Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all. In our culture, marriage is a byproduct. It's, it's almost like a, a contract or an agreement in sports. They'll sign you up for three years or four years or five years. I've heard in European countries, hopefully not here yet, where people are being married for a contractual time. We'll get married for six years or seven years. That shows 
that we do not value marriage at all. But God says marriage should be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So again, marriage is to be honored among all. Number eight, you shall not steal. The Eighth Commandment teaches us that we are not to take something that's not ours. It also reminds us of the value of work. God has instructed us to work, and we must not shirk that responsibility. And when we work, we have an opportunity to show generosity to our neighbors, to our family, to our friends. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. To put simply, do not lie. Have you ever told a lie? Even a small one? Be careful how you answer. This might be your your first lie. (laughs) So we are not to lie. James 2 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And last but not least, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, or property. This command may seem harmless, but it will bring sickness to your soul. It will just begin to rot your your soul from the inside. It's like mold. It will begin to bring rot and devastation. Trust me, I've been here. I've been, you know, all of these. Again, Jesus amplifies all the laws and reminds us that we all are lawbreakers. But this one in particularly, it is so easy to covet. That is, when I say covet, I'm talking about a longing, an unhealthy, a sinful longing, a... uh, One theologian calls it a hankering, Um, not the middle of the night hankering for ice cream, um, but a longing, a hankering, well, I guess it could be, but uh, a a longing that is sinful. It's the difficult, uh, it's the opposite of being content, where we want to covet. You are told, you are what you own, what you buy, what you wear, what you drive, and what you want. I'm here to tell you those are lies. That is not who you are. You are much more than that. Your identity, if you are in Christ, if you are following Christ, if you are a Christ follower, your identity is in Christ. That's why I wanted to read Galatians 3 at the beginning, and that's why I want us to remind ourselves that the law is pointing us to the one who has fulfilled the law. I love Matthew 5.48. It says, I love it because I know the one who fulfilled it. Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Show of hands, who's perfect? We, we are not. But we know the one who is, Jesus Christ. So when we think about the Ten Commandments, it's easy to complain about our culture. We blame situations in society on the lack of prayer in school or the removal of the Ten Commandments from the courthouses. But while these situations may demonstrate the rejection of religion in our country, we must recognize the United States is not a theocracy. We are to influence the government and persuade politicians, but not at the cost of where we make the government or politics our God. The citizenship we should truly seek is to look forward and is tied to the kingdom that is yet to come. So when we think about these Ten Commandments, we must point forward to who Jesus is. The gospel outlined in God's word is not confined to one nation 
or through the United States. It is for all nations so that all can come to know God. It's not through keeping the Ten Commandments perfectly. It is through what? Following the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. As we close, let me read Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 to remind us that the gospel has come not for one nation, but for all nations. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. Lord, we have read Your Word, and... I confess that I'm overwhelmed by your word at time, at times, because many times I look inward instead of upward. So Father, I pray that you will teach us who you are and what you have done, that you have sent your son Jesus Christ to die and pay the penalty for our sins. So we can go through the Ten Commandments and see them as uh, questions on a test that we have missed, but James tells us, Whether we have broken one or broken nine, we have broken all of them. But we see the one who has come and who has completed the law and fulfilled the law and who has brought in the new covenant, your son Jesus Christ. So we look to him. So Lord, lead us by your spirit. Even now as we sing, I pray that you will remind us of the hope that we have. Teach us to trust you and to obey you in all things. And Father, as your people, as the people of God, conform us us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that takes place as we follow your Holy Spirit. He will always point us to the teachings of Christ. So Lord, lead us even now as we sing. Lord, I pray that you'll remind us where our hope lies as we abide in you and you abide in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.